Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Mina Abdi, and in this episode I'm joined by Myra Khan, who's an accredited counsellor, coach, and supervisor working within private practice. Myra delivers workshops and presentations internationally through her wellbeing coaching organisation called Grow to Glow. And in 2017, Myra helped establish the Leicester Centre for Psychodynamic Counselling. Myra was a trustee of the BACP and is the founder of the Muslim Counselor and Psychotherapist Network. She identifies as a Muslim BME practitioner and Myra represents the diversity within the therapeutic profession, promoting counselling to people of colour and underrepresented communities. Myra was awarded the Mental Health Hero Award in 2015 and she's joining me today to talk about the importance of self-care in anti-racism work. How do we take care of ourselves in ways that are meaningful and that align with the actions we engage with as anti-racists? So in this episode, we are focusing on the individual. We've had so many episodes that I've talked about our role as anti-racist, what that means, developing the language and the confidence to do this work. But I want us to spend some time thinking about the intentions uh, that we make as individuals and how we take care of ourselves in doing this work as well. And you're the best person to speak to about this. So before we start, can you just tell everybody who you are and some of the work that you do? Yes, so I'm Myra Khan. So I work as a counsellor, a therapeutic coach and a supervisor. I'm the founder of the Muslim Counsellor and Psychotherapist Network. So absolutely on that theme of self-care, that is a part of my practice. It's something I work with with all my clients, um, but also I deliver lots of workshops on well-being and self-care as well. Brilliant. I I know you're always active uh, in talking about the importance of self-care and anti-racism work as well. Why is it important to embed self-care in anti-racism work and how does it look differently depending on who's doing that work? With anti-racism work in particular, any, or any work in which we are being an activist, it can take so much of a toil upon our kind of emotional, spiritual, mental, physical states that we absolutely need to take care of ourselves when we then engage with the work. Otherwise, the work is just going to literally eat us up and we're going to burn out. Mm. So I think it's so important that when we are being mindful and intentional about the work we're going to engage in, particularly when it's activism work, anti-racism work, that we are also keeping in mind ourselves alongside it. So it's two things on kind of um, parallel tracks and we have to keep both in mind. Yeah. And what does self-care look like? What do we mean when we're talking about self-care? Because it's a word that, that's used a lot, particularly recently on social media around what self-care is, but what, what is it essentially? That's a really interesting question because absolutely, I think right now, over the past few years, the word self-care, I think, has been thrown around a lot. And I think for a lot of people, it has been, it gets caught up with, you know, it's the Friday night bubble bar or it's the you know, mindful cup of coffee or something like that. And it's about doing an activity. For me, fundamentally, self-care is, am I having a caring relationship with myself? And self-care being a capital S. So it's about, am I caring for myself? 
Am I relating to myself in a caring, compassionate, loving, kind way? And that absolutely can include then things such as luxury bubble baths and going for a walk or having a nice mindful cup of coffee. But for me, it's that every moment throughout the day, am I actually thinking of myself and, and, and looking after myself in a way that's caring, kind and compassionate? And very often in, in kind of the commercialization of self-care, it's often around kind of the physical self-care. Mm. And yet, and a fundamental aspect of the work that I do is around people having a very negative or self-critical um, mental and emotional relationship with themselves. Mm. And I think that's the part that I think gets really missed out. And that's the, that's what I really talk about in the work that I do. Yes, let's think about how you can physically self-care for yourself, but also how are you talking to yourself? What are the thoughts or the repeated patterns of opinion and thought and behavior you have about yourself? How do you mm. feel about yourself? Because that for me is where we can really start to make big strides in and how people can shift from a very negative mindset or negative relationship with themselves to becoming more loving and kind and compassionate and really taking care of themselves. Yeah, and that's so important when you're doing work specifically around anti-racism where that work requires you to unpack a lot of things that are happening internally. and It's important for you to think about the ways in which you perhaps are being complicit in some of these systems and activities that you are now disrupting and, and challenging and that internal work and those complex emotions that you have to work through ultimately comes down to how are you going to work through those emotions and talk to yourself as you move forward and engage with other people in this work as well yeah oh absolutely because actually if we set we set it up next to each other as i said earlier on there's parallel tracks anti-racism work any activism work particularly anti-racism work we are in a system in which if you then are from a ethnic minoritized community the system we then have to live in and are related to it is negative it's it's oppressive yet on the flip side self-care is all about trying to have a positive relationship with ourselves so in a way anti-racism work is the complete opposite of a relationship to ourselves that self-care is. So you can start to see, well, hold on a minute, I'm part of a system that tells me that being minoritized, I am limited, I'm oppressed, I don't get half privileges, I'm treated as less than. And yet on the other hand, I'm being told that self-care, I'm meant to be able to love myself fully, and I'm meant to be caring and kind and compassionate. It's really hard then to relate to yourself in a self-caring way when we then live in a system that's proactively doing the opposite to us. So it's really difficult to absolutely, as you said, kind of sit in those very conflicted feelings at times to go, hold on a minute. The world is telling me, giving me a message and treating me in a way that's less than. And yet, how can I then foster and build a self-caring relationship with myself when the world's telling me the exact opposite? Yeah, absolutely. And it's why Audre Lorde in particular says that self-care isn't self-indulgence. It isn't something that is indulgence. It's a necessity. And if you're living and working through an environment and, and a system that is inherently violent and oppressive towards you, your self-care is what allows you to survive within that space. It's what gives you the resilience. And I use that word with caution um, to be able to navigate your way through systems that weren't designed for you, designed to include you. Exactly. And interestingly as well, I'm thinking and I'm reflecting on 
if we are in a system of oppression, if we are in a system that is going to be negative towards us and is going to treat us as less than, the danger and the trap we can fall into is we've internalised that oppression and then we start to have internal oppression towards ourselves. And that, of course, then is fundamental against self-care. Mm. And so what we end up doing is rather than a system beating us up, we internalise that and then do it, do it to ourselves. Mm. And then the system goes, oh, great, our job here is done. And if we carry around that internal oppression, that internal racism, then we are then oppressing ourselves and then almost have we internalised that, that system that we live in. And so we end up, in a way, treating, relating and thinking of ourselves in the way that the system wants us to think about ourselves. And guess what? They no longer have to reinforce a, a message of oppression. We, we do it, you know, it's like we're doing, we're doing their job for them. Yeah, absolutely. So I almost feel like we have to take a few steps back. And instead of thinking about why is self-care important, get into a place where we can actually define what self-care is. Because I think, and I'll say this on a personal level, I think by default, the immediate response to um, I'm, I'm taking care of myself or I'm, I'm engaging in self-care as, a, as an anti-racist is I'm, I'm taking some time away. I'm doing the bubble bath, I'm going for a walk, etc. It's the physical self-care, but we rarely give ourselves the opportunity to actually just sit with our experiences and think, what is it about those experiences that has brought me to this place and how do I use that to move forward? Yes, and not only the experiences, but embedded in those experiences are messages of what the world and society thinks of you yeah. and also places you in what we call you know, a social location. So for every single one of us, our individual identity, when we go out into the world, we are related to because of our identity, visible and invisible. And so we then are put in a social location. We are either put in a place of power and privilege or we are, or, or we are positioned in a place of oppression and being minoritized based on what the world and society thinks who we are based on our identity. And because we have those repeated experiences, because this is how the world relates to us, we then can consciously and unconsciously take on board and internalize those messages and go, okay, oh, so that is my place in the world. That is how little or much value I have in the world. And so for everyone that, that gets placed and located in a minoritized group or community based on whichever aspect of their identity, we will internalize those messages of feeling less than. Mm. And the moment we start actually enacting upon those messages ourselves, internalizing them, taking them on board and going, oh, oh okay, that is how little value I have. You know, I, I, I'm not going to be successful. I, I, I'm going to live in a, a position of lack, I call it. Um, in, in this world, I, I'm not going to be privileged, I'm not going to have abundance, then guess what? We start acting and behaving and relating back to the world with that unconscious internalised message of who we are. Mm. And, it can, and it can get reinforced and it can get, I mean, it becomes a very vicious cycle of the world tells me I'm like this, that I have little value. Therefore, I believe I have little value. And then I'm going to act on that and behave in a way that, that, me, that, um, that reinforces the message that I'm hearing about myself. And this starts at such a young age. 
we have, uh, and, we, and we're talking about anti-racism within schools. So if we're starting at uh, as young as five years old, where children are starting to hear some of these messages and internalize some of these views of themselves, imagine the adults who are then trying to unpack those messages with 10, 20 years of, of internalizing it all. It is, it's a heavy burden to carry. Huge burden to carry, as well as the the kind of the, the kind of the, the penny dropping moment of actually thinking, gosh, but we've all lived through that. Mm. Every single one of us has taken on board the underlying, hidden or unconscious or conscious messages in those experiences, and it doesn't even come from somebody saying something racist to us. It comes from all of that um, oppression all of the barriers and hurdles we face in how we are treated every single day, the moment we leave our front door. Mm. And so we take all of those experiences and we take on board all the feelings. You know, we, we are triggered all the time potentially in how we feel about who we are mm. because of the messages, because of how we're being treated. And that emotional burden, I think is what we're talking about. The, the emotions we feel in relation to who we are because of how the world treats us. That's what we're all living with. That's what gets brought to counselling or to coaching. That's what gets brought into to the workshops and the spaces that I facilitate. When people start to recognise that, oh, how I have been treated in the world has been because of what I look like, because of the race that gets projected onto me, because of... Um, people's projections of who of what ethnic minoritized group they think I belong to because of projection on my gender on my age and and what comes with all of those then is lots of fantasies and projections of then of what people think we are mm. and, and and who they think we are and then we go oh gosh that's how I'm being treated because of all of these indicators of my identity and so for a lot of people there, it's, it's hugely unconscious when we are then being treated because of our identity. And I think what the last 12 months, what the last 18 months has happened, uh, has, has helped is bring that more to a conscious level. Yeah, and that one of the, and what, the ways in which I've been talking to her about it is saying almost as though that the last year has brought trauma to the surface for a lot of people who didn't realise that these the things that they were experiencing were trauma. And, and there were a number of people who, after seeing George Floyd and the visceral effect of seeing that on screen, after seeing um, the rage, and that is the correct word for it, the rage that people were displaying in the Black Lives Matters March, the, the push towards the need for all institutions to engage in anti-racism work, it really just enabled a lot of people to name what they were experiencing. And it's that, that power of just being able to name that thing that is unconscious, those encounters that they've had. And it, it's almost as though the, the fog is cleared for, for, for many people and they can start to see things that, not normalized, but things that, that didn't, they didn't have the language to be able to name, perhaps. Not only not have the language, but also then not have the spaces and avenues for dialogue about it as well yeah and so it can almost feel like everyone then is in their own bubble not quite lockdown bubble but in their own individual bubble of 
actually their own lived experience. Oh, this is what I've been experiencing in the world. Oh, you too. Oh, you've experienced. And oh, and it's because um, of some ident identity factor or because of some visible indicator of my identity. And so I think for a lot of people, yes, for a lot of minoritized communities, marginalized people, it has been a lifelong experience of trauma that is um, often we talk about, you know, there's trauma in which one, one traumatic experience happens, but trauma can also happen when it's like the drip, drip, drip effect. It's a bit like, you know, you can fill a bath by turning on the taps full, full pelt, mm. or you can just leave the tap where, you know, when you, whenever you leave a tap not fully closed, it just drips. Yeah. Trauma can often be experienced like that. We don't realize that 20, 30, 40, 50 years of trauma, being traumatized, being treated in a marginalized, minoritized way is that dripping effect of trauma. Mm. That over time, that bathtub gets fuller and fuller and fuller. And so when you talk about the burden, that's the burden that we're carrying, which is, this is my lived experience, purely based on identity factors that position me, socially locate me as a oppressed or somebody that belongs to an oppressed group or, or, or community. And when we think about them doing the work of anti-racism, there's there's competing arguments. There, you'll see individuals that say we just need to get on with it. There's a sense of urgency. We, we, we it's been brought to our awareness that these issues are clearly apparent. And we need to do the work of dismantling the systems. And then you have others who would say we need to have spaces for conversation because this is the first time that people are talking about it in meaningful ways. This is the first time that people are unpacking what this actually means for them on an individual level, but also what it means for the work that they're engaging in. And how do we create space for both of those things to happen simultaneously? Because as an activist, my immediate push is, we just need to do the work. But I also know through the trainings that I deliver, the, the individuals that I coach, the organizations that I work with, that there has to be that space made for people to work through that trauma because it's, it's impossible for people to do this work meaningfully if they haven't had that space to work through what they're carrying into those into the, their practices. Yes, and it's interesting because so often things get positioned as mutually exclusive. We either have the dialogue or we get on with the work. Yeah. And for me, it's they are part and parcel of the same thing. They're yeah. not mutually exclusive. I'm thinking about counselling, you know, the parallel to counselling and coaching work. Mm. It is through the process of dialogue that change happens in a client. Yeah. It's called talking therapy for a reason um, or through some kind of way of dialoguing. So it doesn't have to even be verbal, you know, thinking about art therapy and all the creative therapies as well. Um, so the two have to happen simultaneously because they are both part of the process of change. There needs to be dialogue to yeah. understand what is it that's actually going on at the moment that needs to be changed and then alongside it the work of what then has to change yeah and I'm just thinking of clients who you know I, I, I work short-term and long-term with clients and I'm thinking yeah change doesn't happen immediately but what needs to happen though is space for the client to sit and have a dialogue about what we call their narrative mm. they need to understand they need to understand, first of all, their lived experience and talk about their narrative. They need to share their narrative before we can then start actually exploring it. You know, it has to be kind of laid out in front of you first. 
before we start poking about in it. We can't start poking about somewhere when we don't know what it is that we're poking about in, if that makes sense. So the, the first part is we actually need the dialogue. And again, a parallel to counselling is, but people don't come for counselling purely then for the dialogue. It is dialogue as a means to change, means to the work and to the action mm. and to the outcomes. And I think so it's a similar thing, I think, with anti-racism work, which is it is about dialogue and having space for deconstruction in order then to know how do we then reconstruct something yeah so we have to know our starting point in order to be able to identify what's the end point we want to get to absolutely and without i'm trying to avoid the risk of creating those dichotomies between the the black experience and the the white experience when we're talking about anti-racism work but that space for self-care that space for dialogue that we've talked about has been really essential I can see it really clearly and why that's important for those who, who are racialized as people of color, who are racialized as black, because we are all racialized, who are needing to work through the ways in which they have experienced trauma in the system as they go through this practice of then looking at taking an anti-racist approach to the work they do. How does that look for somebody who is racialized as white that is doing anti-racism work? Because I don't want to remove the conversation um, around self-care away from those who are meaningfully engaging in anti-racism work and who are allies in this work um, because it's hugely important. But I I think it's important for us to make clear how that process is also different for them. Yes, for racialized whites, they are engaged in this work from a completely different position. Mm. And it is a position of doing the anti-racism work and engaging, being an ally and engaging in the work, but coming from though the position of privilege. So they are approaching and challenging and wanting to deconstruct a system for which it's a system that again, in terms of starting point, they are advantaged by. Mm. And so self-care for racialized white is, is still absolutely how can I care for myself in this work? How can I look after myself whilst I'm engaging and doing the work? But the, the process that they, they will go through as opposed to racialized people of color, but for racialized white people, the process or rather the dichotomy, the conflict they're sitting in is, I am doing work that will ultimately mean I'm dismantling a system which I benefit from. Mm. or I, I, I'm benefited in, in a privileged way from. Mm. So the internal conflict is actually the pull and the push between which side am I going to land on? Can, can I bear to sit in the conflict that I'm going to dismantle something, actually genuinely want to do the work to dismantle a system that then means that everyone is equally treated and everyone has equal access and benefit from. But in order to do so, I have to then go through a process of loss myself. So for racialized white people, anti-racism work includes them experiencing a grief, a loss of privilege for them. Mm. For racialized people of color, for racialized black and brown people, we're processing the the ability to step or move or shift from um, lack into Mm. abundance. So the the shift that that is expected for racialized white is, is a shift of going from privilege to equality Mm. from losing 
status, losing certain benefits, you know, these um, within white privilege, you get, you get, of course, all of these benefits and privileges that are unearned. Mm. So can somebody who's racialized as white engage in, a, in, in this work and engage in a way that means I have to be able to grieve for the loss of the benefits and privileges that I had unearned previously. Mm. And, and which one wins out? Would I rather stay in the current system because I, I benefit from it? Or can I grieve all of the things that I'm going to lose and then, and then genuinely and intentionally work towards a system that, that affords equality to everybody? So for racialized white, it's about the loss and the grieving of that loss and mm. what they're going to lose through, through this work. For racialized black and brown people, it's about, can I do the work that means that at the end of it, in that equality, am I able to step into equality? Yeah. Because again, I'm just thinking also about on the shadow side, for racialized white, it's, I don't want to give up my privilege. I don't want to give up what I what I benefit, how I benefit from the system. Mm. Whereas on the flip side, for racialized black and brown, maybe, am I genuinely working towards a system of equality? Mm. When we really do have to question ourselves on that. Is, is equality what I want? Or is it because we have been lacking and we've been oppressed for so long? Do I actually want a little bit more? Do yeah. I want... Do I want to be, in a way, compensated for what I previously didn't get? Mm. So we've also got to think about the shadow in this. What might our egos, what might we be unconsciously wanting to gain through this work as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's such a really important distinction to make. When we talk about when we're engaging in anti-racism spaces where people are coming into those spaces as either being racialized as people of colour or being racialized as white is being in the same space but experiencing it in very different ways because of those internal dialogues that they're having in terms of how they're experiencing the space, the work that is taking place, etc. And what you've really highlighted, which I think is so important, is that light and shade, that conflict that we are having, regardless of how we're positioned in whether or not we meaningfully want to move this work forward. And there's an element of performativity that can happen regardless of being a person of colour or being somebody who's racialized as white and what does that performativity look like so if we're if we are and we talked about this in the previous episode with Jamal and, and Liz where we said very often we can see individuals who will engage in allyship work but in a way that navigates around their privilege rather than challenges their privilege as well so what are some of the ways in which we can talk about doing this work meaningfully but not actually do this work meaningfully and, and that distinction between what we say and what we actually do. The word that keeps cropping up for me, and I mentioned it earlier to you, um, in a lot of spaces now I talk about intentions. I talk about what is it that we are intending to do in this space? What are my intentions of how I'm going to show up and also what are the intentions of what I want an outcome to look like as well? Mm. And it's really interesting that you give that example of are people just being performative and kind of saying the right thing? 
versus are they actually doing the work? Mm. And again, this, and I think this again goes back to what are those, what are, what are those people out, ourselves including, what are our intentions behind doing the work? Again, I think there has to be a level of honesty and transparency to ourselves. Again, that's an element of self-care, mm-hmm. which is what is it I'm wanting to do here? And absolutely, for some people, it is about, oh, it makes me look good that I'm an ally. Mm. I'm, go- you know, I'm, I'm going to be liked by my peers and my colleagues and I'm going to look great on social media for, for, for being an ally. But then it's about, but then what are you doing day in, day out to challenge then the system that you engage in and, and that you benefit from? Mm. It's this idea of people having... Or, or saying and doing the right thing when they're in public, but do they have that same level of genuine integrity behind a closed door? Mm. And are they doing it when nobody's looking? Yeah. And this again is also where potentially you know, that shadow side comes in. When we talk about the light and the dark, you know, actually, mm. if, if we are an ally, if we do benefit from the current system, we do have these unearned privileges. Is by engaging in the work and managing it in a way that means then that we kind of navigate around the privilege. That's, oh, we're doing the work, but the privileges remain. Mm. We have to be so, we have to kind of be so honest and be so mindful that we are then enacting and using our privilege in that moment as well. Mm. That's privilege in action. And it's the manipulation of it as well. It is the idea that you can go, I'm an ally, but actually I'm going to take charge of the situation. I'm going to take charge of the work. And so um, it's a bit like doing a class or a group project at school and one person takes the lead and then runs ahead with it. Mm. I think we have to be so mindful that in this anti-racism work that's happening, that again, we have to start off from a place of equality in the work itself. Otherwise the work just perpetuates the privilege and dominance of the allies over the people that are minoritized and and oppressed Mm. because again what will happen is allies consciously or unconsciously then will take charge of the project or the work that needs to be done but what will happen is that they will just recreate something that has the same underlying privilege dynamics in it on the surface it might look like oh there's a quality there but all they've done is substituted one element for another one privileged element for another privileged element. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and sometimes the only way in which you can notice that there is um, an incongruence between what you are wanting to do, what your intention is and what your practice is demonstrating is, is having that space of dialogue where somebody can hold a mirror up to you and say, just ask those questions of, is this what you've intended to do? Has this allowed you to achieve? what you wanted to achieve um, as an ally. How, how has your positionality been challenged in this space? How have your privileges been challenged in these spaces? How do we create those meaningful spaces for dialogue so that we can ask people those questions that allow them to look introspectively, but doing so in a way where these conversations aren't just taking place on social media. And I'm, I'm really conscious that as somebody who does a lot on social media where I'm, I'm wary of, how visible we are and how that visibility can sometimes give legitimacy to what we say in those spaces as opposed to 
what we do in the spaces where the damage is actually taking place. So how do we have those conversations in schools? How do we have those conversations in hospitals? How do we have those conversations in office rooms where colleagues who are working alongside each other, who are doing anti-racism work and who are doing allyship work can have those honest conversations um, whilst acknowledging that there are always gonna be those power dynamics at play. It's, it's such an interesting question because a couple of things come to mind and one is in that dialogue you are not just listening to the other person the reflection back to you you also need to listen to how you are responding and reacting to what they're saying to you as well mm -hmm. and that's the bit for me in counseling terms we call that counter transference um it's how am i responding to or rather reacting to what someone is saying to me and that's a really important clue into what really are my intentions because mm -hmm. my reactions my responses my immediate reactions they can't lie to me however I feel in response to somebody saying to me my what are your what are your intentions or my you did this or you said that and this is how it felt my response to that tells me something about whether am I coming from a place of genuine intention or do I do I find myself essentially um going into a defensive position mm -hmm. am I reacting to what somebody has said to me because that means it's hit upon something within me it means that either I wasn't being congruent or my words and my actions didn't match up or I said something but actually I didn't really mean it um yes I want an equality system but actually um if I've given a suggestion in a group or in a dialogue and somebody says my that doesn't sound um, equitable my response to that will tell me something about whether I actually mean it or not so it's not just about the mirror being held up to you in these dialogues. I think it's also really important that we also have that internal dialogue with ourselves about how am I really feeling about this? And, and that dialogue is continuous. Absolutely. It's a constant feedback loop. It's that we are always reacting and responding to what other people are saying to us, but also, and equally they're responding to what we're saying to them. And so dialogue also is not just on that surface level of, okay, I'm an ally, you're somebody from a racialized black or brown community. Let's work together. Let's collaborate. It's also about, well, what's the dynamic that's being set up between the two of you? Mm. And so if you're going to be honest and, and give that honest, transparent, true, truthful feedback to somebody, their response to it is a clue or an indicator to where they're at with it. Mm. Do they genuinely mean it or not? Or do they become defensive? do they go on the attack maybe yeah. so our response when while we're engaging in dialogue or what's we're engaging in the work our responses to what's going on in the group or in, in in a relationship tells us something about is this feeling good for me or not is this feeling genuine is this matching the words that i said or my intentions mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a couple of things in relation to that that I wanted to ask you that have emerged in over the last few weeks. So first of all, there have been sort of the emergence of white spaces, and I use that with caution. Um, and space, and by that I mean spaces in which those who are racialized as white, who are doing the work of anti-racism and allyship, have created spaces for those who are racialized as white and that are engaging in this work to talk to one another about what the work entails. Um, around self-care and the importance of self-care and having that conversation in spaces that don't include um, people of colour who are engaging in this work. 
And it's a deliberate decision. Um, and I can understand some of the rationale behind it, but it still makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so I wanted to unpack a little bit of that with you. Um, the rationale behind it, which I understand to a certain degree, is that the burden of white guilt, white shame, of white fragility to a certain degree, and, I use, and I'm not a huge fan of Robin DiAngelo, so I use the term white fragility with caution as well, um, shouldn't be constantly exposed to those who are working their way through racial trauma while they're engaging in this work. And so separating up that space where people can have a conversation about doing this work through a space of whiteness, um, I can see the importance of that. But I also find that sometimes those spaces, if they are not informed by the experiences of those who are impacted by the system or who are racialized as people of color, can only ever see part of what needs to be engaged with. And so there's something that is lacking in that space constantly because it's only focusing on the experience of, of whiteness. But at the same time, and, and this is where I feel like there's a little bit of a contradiction to what I'm saying. Even though I'm, I'm averse to there being entirely white spaces for that reason, because I feel like the, the, the meaningful engagement in self-care, the meaningful engagement in unpacking this work can't ever be fully thought through unless you are able to look at that through the experiences of what the impact is. But I do think that there should be all black spaces, spaces for people of color who are impacted by this work, who are working through racial trauma to have those conversations about self-care and to have those conversations about what it means to do anti-racism work as people who are impacted by the system. Because that is about creating a space of safety and it, it's there's two very different rationales for me in, in my view of, of those two spaces, but I'd really welcome your thoughts on, on what you think about some of the decisions that are being made regarding that. My, my first reflection on this is that I go back to what I said earlier about the theme of whether spaces need to be mutually exclusive or not, or whether you know uh, those relationships or dynamics and, and the work is, is mutually exclusive or not. And I think what what is getting kind of combined here is the need for white spaces only for a part of their process mm. for which then potentially later on they then need to be in a space with racialized black and brown people mm. to do almost like the next level or layer of processing and again I think it's this idea that they're not mutually exclusive though it's not that you only need one or the other, you need both. Mm. And, and I think it's because, again, it's, it's about thinking about, well, what's the intention for these spaces? Because what is the process that's trying to be facilitated here? Yeah. A white-only space offers a particular part of their experience to be processed. Mm. So, I mean, in a way, I'm thinking almost like a, a, um, of a book, you know, different chapters, and it's a bit like, well, a white only space is, is potentially, I'm generalizing here, it's like, well, does that need to be chapter one? Mm. Otherwise they can't progress onto chapter two then, which is a space with black and brown people. Mm. So for me, it isn't one or the other. It's not either or, it's, we need both, but how do we facilitate both in a way that actually makes both effective? Yeah. So in that white only space, yes, it, it allows racialized white people to amongst themselves explore 
white guilt, white fragility, white shame, and maybe to identify also actually, oh gosh, yes, we are in a, be conscious in this, you know, consciously, we are in a system that, that, that is privileging and, and, and that privileges us and benefits us. How? Where can we identify all the times and spaces in our lives and experience in our lives where we have, we have benefited from the system? Because it almost feels as if a space just for them allows them to do the work that they can do on their own. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking about the next step, like chapter two then, is they can only do so much in chapter one because they have blind spots. And those blind spots, I think, is what you were talking about, Mina, which is about, but they're then not in conversation or in dialogue with racialized black and brown people. So I think there's something around, well, what is the remit or what are they able to do in white-owned spaces? That's part of the work. But there are clear blind spots in only having those white only spaces because what you can't do then is have a dialogue with and start the process of being in relationship then with racialized black and brown people. Mm. We'll that in chapter two, the yeah. idea again that it's one or the other. I don't think it's, I think it's one after the other. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking about, and I completely agree with you because I, in, in having that as a staged approach where stage one is them doing that, that work for themselves it to a certain degree mitigates some of the risks that come that people of color face in entering into those spaces with those who are racialized as white, who are coming into those combined spaces, either ill-informed or with that white guilt and with that white shame that then the person of color has to carry um, in that space as well. So if some of that can be mitigated by having that initial space where some of those challenging things are covered and, and worked through and then bringing them into that space where it comes almost a little bit more, trying to find the right word to explain this, where, where both people entering into that space, recognizing that they have an awareness of their egos to a certain degree. Yeah, absolutely. For, for me, it's about if we jump straight into chapter two of that stage process in a way, yeah, if we jump straight into stage two, where it's a, a combined group of racialized white, black and brown, all, and they're all trying to do chapter one work, in that mixed group altogether, absolutely, that there is a there is a huge risk there because everyone is coming at this raw. Mm. Everyone is coming with raw, unprocessed lived experience and trauma. And guess what happens at any group in which there is trauma and where there is there has been, you know, really difficult, challenging lived experiences, very traumatizing lived experiences because of the identified other in the room, guess what happens? Unconsciously and even consciously, that dynamic just gets played out and out again. And there's huge risk because there is potentially huge um, re-traumatizing and pain that is going to be again unconsciously transferred onto one another because it's all, all raw and unprocessed material. So in a way, those white only or racialized black or brown only spaces need to be kind of in chapter one separately. Yeah. So that some of that raw and processed material can start to be thought about in a way that goes, let me think about my experience first on my own or with a group of same racialized people. So we can talk about our common lived experiences, you know, some of the common experiences we, we have shared. So that the next step is how can I then do that work in relation to the other? in relation to a racialized white or for racialized white people how can i do that next stage of processing 
with that added ingredient in a way. Mm. But we cannot figure out who we are when we're too busy getting caught up in, well, who am I in relationship to you? Yeah. We have to do the individual work, that's the self-care, we have to do the individual work first. Mm. Equally, when we go into then like a stage two, where we are then working together, all of a sudden then, because we are in relationship with other racialized communities and groups, all of a sudden those blind spots that weren't in that stage one are now there. And we can only then work with those blind spots that have now appeared in stage two because we've already processed the stage one stuff. Otherwise, if we didn't do the work in our own spaces first, we will be so busy getting caught up in the relationship with the other that we have no time to think about what actually hold on a minute I've had no time to think about my own experience yeah and we often find that in 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 training sessions where and it's it's become more and more challenging to have those training sessions where you have people of color in the room and you have those who are racialized as white in the room because it's almost as though the those who are racialized as people of color are saying I know this already I want to get to the action part of it I, I need to move forward with this work whereas those who are racialized as white often say I need time to process I haven't had the time to process I need I need that time and space to process and it's we almost need individuals to work through that processing before they enter into that space where we're now developing that racial literacy alongside each other. Yes because the difficulty with these spaces is that not everyone turns up in this at the same start line. Yeah. Everyone's at different places with it. Some people have done a lot of processing potentially you know they've gone to counseling they've processed a lot of their trauma for other people it's like I had no idea my my white privilege was completely unconscious to me so I've got no idea any of this I was a part of this Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how I benefited from the system and I think for for racialized black or brown people who have started to understand this and started to do some of that processing they turn up at these spaces like you just said and going right let's get on with let's get on with it let's do the work but for people and that can include some racialized black or brown people who are not yeah. fully aware either of the system. Yeah, um, absolutely. Not, so it's not just racialized white people, but for anyone then who's like 10 steps behind goes, oh, I can't do the work because I've got to catch up first. Yeah. But I think we have to be so mindful of how we set up and facilitate spaces because people are going to be coming to this from de- very different start, start positions. Mm. And some people are going to be ahead. Other people are going to be way behind. And it's then really difficult to get everyone to the same finish line of right, what, what we're actually going to do, what are the actions when some people are still trying to process for themselves? Gosh, mm. even, where even am I in this? Yeah. So I think those kind of white only or black and brown only spaces as a stage one approach, I think will help a lot to support actually getting to the action. Because I know you were saying earlier, Mina, I just want to get to the action. Yeah. I think actually you'll get there quicker by having yeah. those white only spaces and then or, and black and uh, black and brown only spaces and then coming to spaces where you can come together mm. and work relationally and understand okay I've spent time thinking about my white privilege for example or I've spent time thinking about how I've been oppressed and minoritized as a racialized black or brown person now that I've understood that now I can yeah. speak to you somebody who's from a different racialized community from me and now we can talk because you've done your work as well you've done stage one as well we, we can both now enter stage two now talking about so what does that mean when we're then in relationship to one another mm. how does it play out because if we don't do that 
and we just jump straight into stage two with that raw and processed material. Guess what happens? The space itself unconsciously mm. and through the transference, through unconscious communication, through unconscious processes, the same out there privileged oppressive system and structure just gets absolutely replayed in the group. Mm. So actually the group becomes ineffective because all you're doing is just unconsciously recreating the same dynamic and you don't get anywhere. And I think that, that can often happen and in groups where then racialized black or brown people go, I just want to get on with the work. I've, had the, I've been having this conversation for the last 20 years. Mm. And, then you're, you're, and then what's happening is, is that they get shut down by racialized white people who haven't yet done the work. So whose needs are being met in that space? Who's being prioritised? Who's getting the benefits and the privilege? Mm. Racialised white people. Yeah. So all you're doing is just recreating the same privilege and oppressive dynamic in a space where people come to with raw and processed trauma. Absolutely. And recognising that when you do have those in stage one spaces where you have those who are racialised as white or those who are racialised as people of colour talking about their, their shared experiences those spaces themselves may be experienced differently. So often we find that when when people of colour are able to come to spaces where they talk about the experiences of racism, it can be um, uh, bringing back up trauma that sometimes people don't want to to relive, but it can also be a space that is cathartic, that is therapeutic, because they're able to almost feel as though their experiences are being seen for the first time and being heard for the first time. Whereas I have a lot of colleagues who do anti-racism work and allyship work who are racialized as white, who say that they feel deeply uncomfortable in all white spaces because it is the epitome of privilege in that space that it's an exclusively white space where most places that we are in are exclusively white spaces. And often those white spaces are not facilitated with the criticality that is needed. And so what can sometimes happen is that you find people talking about their experiences of privilege in a way where they're not engaging with it critically, it's just done through the lens of guilt. And that and that isn't productive. Those conversations are not productive and it doesn't allow them to think deeply about how did we get to, to where we are in order to be able to, to move forward. Yes, again, I think there are two things in there. One. I'll go with the latter first. One which is in those spaces then, in, in a racialized white only space, let's go back to what are the intentions and what's being facilitated? Mm. Because I absolutely, I think it takes skill in that group to then allow people to feel safe enough and to feel vulnerable enough to actually open up. Mm. And as a counsellor, I know day in, day out, you know, I, I come across, you know, um, from work with you know, people that are heavily defended we all have defense mechanisms. Yeah. So especially when you know you're going to go into a space where you are going to be vulnerable, guess what happens unconsciously? Our defenses go up. So I think the facilitation of those spaces is incredibly important. But again, though, with the intention of, well, why are we here? What is it we're trying to achieve? What, it, what, what outcome do we want at the end of it? So there's that to think about. Going back to your earlier point then around these kind of exclusive white-only spaces, interestingly, in my head, I've kind of gone, well, exclusive white-only spaces for the purpose of talking about whiteness is because it is a conscious and intentional choice for the means and for the process for the work to happen. 
as opposed to saying, well, lots of spaces are exclusively only are exclusively white only spaces, but that exclusivity is unconscious mm-hmm. and is that's the systemic structural racism. That is the white privilege in action. So they are not exclusive only white spaces because they've gone, we want the space to be white only Mm. for the purposes of looking at whiteness. It's because they're white only spaces because that's the system in action. Mm. I think we also have to kind of differentiate between those two as well. So does that mean that the the white spaces that we're talking about need to be really stage two and stage one needs to be building up that racial literacy so that they're able to to fully understand the way in which their whiteness is being positioned um, in that space so that they're able to intentionally and consciously and critically think about their whiteness in that space and frame it in a particular way. They need to be able to have that language and understand the concepts that we're engaging with first before they can go into those spaces and have meaningful conversations. Because if it's stage one, the only thing they're entering into those spaces with is their lived experiences and particularly in, in, in spaces around whiteness Whiteness is unconscious, it is invisible. And so the only thing you're asking people to come into that space and share is what is already as part of their awareness, which may be minimal at that point. Yeah, absolutely. It's because stage one for racialized white people is not acknowledged consciously, it's not spoken about, it's not shared Mm. in the sense of, you know, in, in dialogue. Whereas stage one for racialized black and brown people mm. has been a conscious part of our lived experience from the moment we're born almost. Absolutely. And so stage one for us is our everyday lived experience because it, we have conscious dialogue about it. So already we can, you know, when I said earlier about people, at, you know, might come to a mixed space from different, um, at different levels, they're all at different starting points. Mm. So yeah, for racialized white people then, they're, two chapters behind they're two stages behind yeah and not behind in an oppressed way mm. behind in a privileged way because they've not had to think the privileges they've not had to think about it the privileges is that oh I can skip those first two chapters as opposed to we were having to read the first two chapters we were needing to do the work in the first two chapters because it impacts on our lived experience it affects us day to day absolutely Mara we could go on I'd love speaking with you, but can you give the listeners some final words of wisdom um, on what they can do to start embedding self-care into their work if they're engaging in anti-racism work? A key word is boundaries, which easy for me to say, but it really is asking yourself, are you putting in and applying and establishing healthy boundaries around the work you do? as well as boundaries around your self-care. So your anti-racism work, that itself needs to have boundaries around it, but that then doesn't mean that self-care then is just on the other side of that boundary. You also need to be intentional and boundaried about your self-care as well. So yeah, that boundaries would be kind of the key word to take away from this. Boundaries and being intentional. Brilliant. Myra, thank you so much. There's so much to take away from, from this episode, but I, I really appreciate everything that you've you've given to our listeners and to myself as well. I've taken so much on board. So just a huge thank you. Can you please let people know how they can reach you? What are what best ways to contact you? Yep. So like you, all over social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. And my website is myrakhancounseling.co.uk.
anti-racism work looks different for us all, and so does self-care. But self-care is vital for those who commit themselves to this work, and it's especially important for those who are also experiencing race-induced trauma. Both anti-racism work and race-induced trauma can be mentally, physically, and psychologically draining. Radical self-care goes beyond tackling those extremely overwhelming experiences. It is an essential ingredient for health and sustenance in this lifelong battle we have against systemic racism and white supremacy. And for those who are anti-racist and are also engaging in allyship work, self-care is also important. Self-care by definition is the practice of taking action to preserve or improve your own health. It is something that is incumbent upon all of us in order to ensure that the work that we do as anti-racist and as allies is sustainable and is meaningful and does not come at the detriment to our health and our well-being. There is a danger though to self-care when we're doing allyship work and that is in how the concept has been co-opted. The concept of self-care was largely conceived by and for black people in order to survive in a world that cares disproportionately for white health and for white well-being. So it's important that if you are doing allyship work and you are engaging in self-care, you are having an open and honest conversation about what that actually means. Don't use self-care as an excuse to chin out. This work is about ensuring that your actions are working in a way that is meaningful. Do not consume media intentionally and do it mindfully. Stay informed of what is happening, but don't get to the point in which you're indulging in trauma to the point where it affects your mental health. Ask yourself how self-care can support your goals. Align your self-care tools that you're creating to align with the actions that you're working towards and set clear goals. There are so many things that you can do in order to protect your self-care whilst engaging in this work. But one of those things that you can't do is avoid discomfort. Use self-care as a way to process those uncomfortable emotions rather than trying to avoid them. And don't forget about the importance of community care. Your responsibility as an ally is to take care within the community that you are now a part of. So take care of each other, take care of yourself, but please be mindful that self-care is also something that is extremely racialized and extremely privileged in certain settings. This has been a critical conversation with Myra that has highlighted so many key issues that I hope we can reflect on and continue to build on in the episodes that follow. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. <laughs>